Now, I've been part of the steel industry for nearly 34 years. And as everyone who is close to our industry knows, life here is never dull. It can be exhilarating, depressing, joyful and terribly sad, sometimes all in the same day. And recent months have been no different as the challenges of decarbonising the UK steel industry continue to make the news. Most recently, in a mini documentary on Sky News hosted by their economics correspondent, Ed Conway. If you haven't seen it, you should look it up on the Sky News website or YouTube. Uh, in fact, we'll put a link in the notes to this podcast. It's a fascinating overview of the challenges, obstacles and potential solutions in a level of detail that is often difficult for our friends in the media to find space for. I had the pleasure of hosting Ed and his team at uh, Port Talbot to show him our current methods of making iron and steel and then up to our steel park site in uh, the Midlands where robots and lasers make steel components for the automotive industry amongst others. Interestingly, Ed didn't leave his investigation just on our TV screens. He posted a lengthy article online and uh, a long thread on Twitter, which provoked some quite a reaction. His graph showing that since 1967, the UK steel industry has shrunk more than any other country in the world, with the exception of Venezuela, was jaw-dropping. The conundrum that the cost of investing in renewable energy contributes to the uncompetitive nature of a domestic steel industry that should be supplying the very same renewable energy infrastructure is difficult to reconcile. And while there may have been some perspectives in the documentary that those of us close to the industry might question, I like to think and hope that Ed Conway's piece will act as a reference point for some time to come. As I said, the piece provoked some reaction, and that is always a good thing. We really want to keep the topic of sustaining a UK steel industry in the public view. One reaction came from our guest on the podcast today, and I'm delighted he's able to join us to add another layer of detail on the possible solutions to decarbonising the steel industry. Why, he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, was there no mention of the potential role of carbon capture and storage as a way to decarbonise the UK steel industry in the documentary? And it's a good question. It's a well-talked-about technology for energy-intensive industries, and one for which the government has recently announced a staggering £20 billion support fund. My guest today is Professor John Gibbons, who is the Centre Director for the UK Carbon Capture and Storage Research Community Network Plus, based at Sheffield University. John, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Really looking forward to discussing a topic that we may not have given enough airtime to in uh, previous conversations and episodes on this podcast. So, you know, firstly, it might be helpful for our listeners to understand that what is meant by carbon capture and maybe a bit more about the role and the purpose of the organisation you look after in Sheffield? Yeah, so the term really is is carbon capture and storage, and it should also say permanent storage. So mm. there's actually a fair bit of talk, I guess, more in the steel industry than other places about carbon capture, but you need to think what you're going to do with the carbon afterwards. And yeah. if the world's going to net zero, uh, that means essentially you've got to put the carbon permanently out of circulation. And that means really putting it back underground, just turning it into a fuel or something that gets released will not get you, obviously, to net zero. Carbon carbon capture and, and permanent storage means what it says, essentially, uh, capturing carbon usually as carbon dioxide, in fact, pretty much always as carbon dioxide, if you want to store it permanently, and then putting it underground a kilometre or more down 
to get the necessary pressure so that it doesn't take up too much volume. And then essentially leaving it there in the subsurface where the carbon originally came from. Yeah, and I was going to say some people might think, oh, this isn't a great idea, just burying our waste, for want of a better word. But as you rightly say there, I guess it's uh, returning it to from whence it came, is it? Well, of course. I mean, carbon comes out of the subsurface and needs to go back into it. There's there's some thought that you know people are proposing with things like offsets, which are not you know, have a have a fairly bad reputation, really, uh, to take fossil carbon and put it in the biosphere. But you can't do that. You know, the biosphere right. has its own carbon cycle, and just adding carbon to it from underground doesn't work. Mm. That's that's why we're in the mess we're in. So. What comes out the ground has to go back into the ground. Uh, and then people say, oh, wouldn't it be nice to use it? Well, it would be nice, but the quantities involved are so enormous that you just can't do it. Uh, there, yeah. isn't, uh, there aren't uses that permanently store the CO2 for that sort of quantity. Uh, concrete will take up a little bit. And this might come into our conversation as we go through the, through, through the conversation on the podcast later, but I guess there are opportunities to use... The, the direct emissions from energy intensive industries in another way and then capture it further down the route but what you're saying yeah is, but the problem the yeah. problem with that is you then end up saying okay but but really what's going on uh, you know who's paying to do what and by and large if you're you know so use the emissions well okay you could use carbon monoxide and burn it and capture it but if you turn carbon monoxide into a liquid fuel, people don't want to use liquid fuels with CO2 capture. The value of liquid mm. fuels usually is, is transport. Yeah. So I know we've got a pilot plant at the Portalba Steelworks, which is yeah. it's a size of a bus stop still. Obviously, we're at the University of South Wales and they're looking at turning it uh, blast furnace gases into, I think, acetic acid as a generic term for lot, a whole multiple use of applications. You know, is there mm. room for, for technologies like that, John? Not really, because the you know the issue there's two issues there. One is, as I say, most of the things you produce will end up releasing the CO2 fairly soon. You, as a rule of thumb, you want to keep the CO2 out of circulation for at least ten thousand years. That's the sort of the wow. climate, climate constant. That's easy in geological storage because you know, geological timescales are millions of years. We know that yep. the places that you find fluids securely trapped underground they've been there for millions of years almost sure. always mm. um, but for most uses no it'll get released so you won't do anything and then also uh, a lot of these things kind of rely on calling the product sustainable or green or something and i i think pretty soon people will realize that it's uh, just covering up fossil carbon and yeah you know, the, fossil, the fossil carbon is a problem the, en the only carbon you really you can put forward in those sort of roles is carbon that's come out of the atmosphere right. so it's either biogenic origins uh and then you get issues with with the uh, food supply conflicts or yeah. else it's co2 that's been physically captured from the air uh using yeah. direct air capture yeah and if we i guess if we bring it a bit closer to home i know your research isn't specifically uh on capturing carbon from the steel industry but the steel industry is still one of the largest emitters of co2 as a, a result of the chemical reduction process in a blast furnace turning iron ore into iron in uh yep. in Potoba and scunthorpe but you know could you could you sort of lay out your vision of how your your technology your group uh work 
might uh, work for the steel industry in the UK specifically? Because I, I, I understand this sort of different geological and geographical factors that um, that might impact on the solutions for for, the, for those two businesses specifically in the UK. Yeah. Well, okay. So I, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it my technology. It's a technology that. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm involved in. There's a, there's yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of commercial technology out there, and indeed, quite a lot of technology that isn't commercial. This has been done uh, for nearly a hundred years, and and people know how to take CO2 out of flue gases. But yeah. what the the steel industry needs to essentially face up to globally and and in the UK is the timescales. So we've got 27 years to. When we're supposed to be net zero globally and indeed that's none too soon yeah. to avoid dangerous warming and that's a bit under ten thousand days wow yeah i know <laughs> ten thousand days so what are you going to do um and it's all very well saying oh well we'll save money we'll uh, bring in new steel making processes over a period of time but clearly ten thousand days is not very long in the life cycle of of the current assets that we've got it just mm. isn't uh, and that's in the uk perhaps is is in a better stage than most parts of the world for uh, for reinvesting uh, other parts of the world have got quite new steel plants that they won't want yep. to change so yep. we really do have to make a decision whether we're going to go with what we've got uh and sort that out and yes we will gradually make a transition uh, or whether really we're going to essentially give up because the the cost of replacing all that infrastructure is just too high. Mm. So everybody goes, oh, well, I don't want to capture CO2 um, from the chimneys on my plant. It's too expensive. And it's like, well, okay, but you've got no choice. You know, no, no, we're not in a good place. You know, yeah. People talk about, oh, let's have an energy transition, like it's it's an opportunity. Well, unfortunately, it's not. We've, you know, the human race has been dumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere uh, for over a million years, uh, and we've reached the limits of our atmosphere as we've mm. had exponential population growth. And mm. yes, it, it will come with a cost. Against that, uh, the other way you can look at it is, yes, we might need to make iron and steel uh, with extra expenses to capture the carbon dioxide rather than dumping it in the atmosphere. But we're not making iron and steel using the methods we had 50, 100 years ago. Yeah. So actually, we could make iron and steel much more cheaply than we used to, just mm. not as cheaply as we could do if we didn't pass on the costs of putting CO2 in the atmosphere to future generations, which is what you do if you don't stop it. Mm. Now, basically, yeah. all of the CO2 that you put in the atmosphere now will have to be taken out in the future by yeah. other people. And what's going to happen, I think you can see it coming quite clearly, is that you will get probably an excess amount of, of CO2 in the atmosphere, um, and we'll start to see intolerable things happening on climate change. And intolerable things means stuff like um, destabilizing ice caps, yeah. uh, destabilizing permafrost, uh, excess heat events in hot places where the wet bulb temperature gets above what people can cope with. And then when the power gives out and you've got no air conditioning, that's it. Um, there's an interesting book, The Ministry for the Future, that describes that in India. So intolerable things will start to happen. 
probably at that point people will do the only thing you can do when things are intolerable and you want quick action which is some form of solar radiation management but you can't carry on doing that forever at the very best it just you know makes things tolerable but not not wonderful mm -hmm. and so people will have to pull the co2 out of the atmosphere and effectively out of the surface layers of the ocean uh, a lot of the co2 that's been put into the atmosphere has gone into the surface layers of the ocean but it's not disappeared uh, they don't mix the ocean doesn't mix vertically so the co2 is still there and it'll come out again if you start taking it out of the atmosphere and that's that's it so effectively if you put co2 in the atmosphere now and you're condemning future generations not to the cost of taking it out your flue gas at a pretty high concentration actually in uh, most yep and still flue gases but taking it out the atmosphere at uh well it won't be 400 parts per million it might be 600 but it's still very mm. very low concentration yeah and that, that you know this the whole debate has a real time pressure on it and i was at a recent construction summit and they were talking about future building solutions in the built environment and stuff and there was one of the guys uh, who was on a previous podcast said but we can't forget this is happening now you know this isn't happening in 2030 everything you do today is is having an impact on our climate now and 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 the time for action is now but of course these things whether whether you change technology in the steel industry to electric arc furnace and that's a debate we'll have shortly i'm sure or you want to implement some sort of carbon capture technology you know even even those are going to take some time and we and we will want to come on to that but i just wanted to explore about that the geographical locations of the Talbot and Scunthorpe Steelworks, because as I yep. understand it, the UK has, someone said, the third largest storage capacity of any country in Europe, I guess as an island, but that, which must be a good starting place. But but as I understand also that none of that in South Wales, none of that is in South yeah, Wales. I, well, so what's so the I, answer, I, do you think, there? Is it, yeah, is it a case of I, piping it or shipping it? or? Yeah, I thought we were second, actually, after Norway. But, okay. Uh, uh, but it, anyway, it, it's it, it's very adequate, but it's mostly where you find oil and gas. So yeah. in the North Sea and some of it in the Irish Sea. The Irish Sea is the closest geographically to uh, Port Talbot. Uh, yeah. Scunthorpe obviously is in line to connect up to the Humber CCS cluster, which yeah. is going off into the, it's planned now to build a pipeline on the south bank of the Humber going yeah. out into the... Uh, the North Sea and old gas fields. But yes, Port Talbot's on the coast. But in some ways, shipping CO2 has some advantages. If you connect it up to a pipeline, just it naturally, uh, while we've got single pipelines, there will be times when they're down for maintenance, let yeah. alone any, any problems. Mm. So you have to decide what you're doing then. You won't be able to capture and store the CO2. Whereas if you're shipping, you can go to multiple destinations. Uh, sure. And the fact is, at least um, for quite a period, there will be a number of iron and steel plants which can't access pipeline transport. Yeah. And we will just have to face the cost of doing that. And governments will have to decide what amount of um, adjustment they'll put in to allow societies to make a transition from where you could just dump CO2 into the air to where you have to dump it mm. properly into a pipeline and then provide some compensation for different places. So the real question is not is, uh, you know, is Port Talbot expensive because you've got to ship CO2, but is it more expensive than anywhere else that has to ship mm. CO2? And the answer is no. 
no. I mean, it's quite an interesting concept, isn't it? That, that that carbon dioxide could play a part in a free market economy because people will be bidding from one side or the other about where to sequester the carbon dioxide. Yes, very good point. You can drive a good bargain. In fact, Port Talbot, interestingly, if you go to North America, because North America has quite cheap storage costs because they've got a lot of a lot of storage as well, uh, relatively cheap construction costs. And once you get the CO2 on a on a vessel, mm. then the costs of going a bit a bit further uh, are not so great. So I'd, I'd be very surprised if shipping across the Atlantic certainly didn't beat shipping to Norway, given the cost levels in Norway. <laughs> it might even beat in quantity uh, shipping to somewhere around the coast in the UK because vessel sizes will be a bit smaller. Yeah, it doesn't seem like an attractive uh, proposition, does it? Shipping stuff across the world. I know in the past we've done it with all sorts of stuff, our waste and. Well, uh, you still are. Where, where, where does your iron ore come from? Where, where does where does? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It comes from. Yeah, I mean, it's just what world. happens. That's exactly right. Yes, it does. Yeah. So, um, but it's an old interesting concept that people might not have really considered about what does carbon capture look like, you know, geographically and, and from a market perspective. So. Um, so, so this is exactly why it's great to have you on the pod, John, to to introduce some of these these themes and saying, look, that you know, the kind of the thought processes are out there, and 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 possibly the solutions are out there. But yeah. uh, for steel in in Europe, you've got to think, well, how many steel plants will be on a CO two pipeline for the foreseeable future? Mm. And the answer is, you know, limited number. I mean, Scunthorpe possibly, yeah, um, but you know, Scunthorpe has its own issues about investment. So not that many. You're yeah. Perfectly, yeah, yeah. Perfectly able to compete uh, in yeah. South Wales. Yeah. And then, and then, as I say, globally, um, how many steel plants don't even have ship access? They don't have a CO2 pipeline. They don't have a ship access. Yeah. They're in real trouble. You know, if, you, if you've got yeah. a shipping terminal mm. that can take large vessels, basically you're in a very good position really yeah yeah no i get that understand that yeah so um, i mean the current narrative now i guess in the uk around the steel industry is about decarbonizing is about as we mentioned right at the beginning about potentially changing technology which is as we all know massively expensive and you know focus on making steel from scrap through electric arc furnaces which you know, we know has its challenges in terms of electricity costs availability renewability and so on and so forth there's also talk, talk about producing direct reduced iron using hydrogen or more issues about how hydrogen is produced and and transported could almost be another podcast on its own isn't it but you know as assets such as blast furnaces and co-carbon start to reach the end of their lives you know as a as a proponent of carbon capture you're not suggesting that when they come to the end of the life we should real rebuild furnaces and use carbon capture in preference to moving a new technology are you because the cost of doing either of those is it's probably fairly similar, isn't it? Isn't it better to invest in the new technology and cut the carbon out almost altogether? We'll have to see what the running costs turn out to be um, yeah. for the fuels and also uh, for the ores that you need to use to get the products that you want. Yeah. So uh, wouldn't be surprised um, in the foreseeable future if you want to keep primary steel making that if you do a lifetime cost for hydrogen uh it turns out to be more mm. yeah i mean and i know it's a i know it's a discussion that we continue to have with the uk government about you know it's one thing to cap, put the capital investment in new technology and electric arc furnaces it's quite another thing to run them on 
electricity which is uh, a, a competitive and b renewable but yeah but uh, we're not talking yeah but i mean that's that's electric art furnaces mm. which doesn't keep a uk primary steel making capacity we may or may not decide that's an important thing but uh, i think there's there's certainly a question whether we want to uh but if you're talking about using hydrogen as a as a reducing agent mm. then and you're starting with electricity yeah. uh then you've got the conversion efficiency losses yeah but as but i you know and you i think you'll find that fairly expensive um yeah you could you know obviously use natural gas and use direct iron reduction and there's a uh, one steel plant in the middle east doing that and capturing and storing the co2 mm. um but again costs costs are fairly high mm. uh, for the gas and uncertain and i believe you're yeah. limited in the ores you can use yeah uh, but it, you know so, and, and you know for, for, you know it's not my area of expertise but i'm just going to kind of take a step back again because i guess as a i am an insider but as a uh, yeah the simple approach to saying what's the future of steel making if someone said continue making steel from iron ore and coke ovens and sinter plants and blast furnaces and steel plants so therefore reinvest in those assets would cost billions of pounds as they reach their end of a life over a period of time. And the answer to that would be to capture the carbon that came off them. The alternative is to create electric arc furnished route based on scrap, which is domestically sourced. So that you'd be more resilient from the UK perspective in using native scrap. And if you can get to a place where the energy to run those electric arc furnaces comes from renewable energy, you will have still some carbon emissions, but it will be massively reduced. Is that is that not the sensible answer from a both a cost and environmental perspective? Well, I'm not an insider, but I understand that at least some of the UK's blast furnaces have got enough life to, left in them to usefully uh, use uh, capture, post-combustion yeah. capture on the power plant. So that that isn't that isn't really an issue. So, I mean, there's sort of a question there. Are you going to leave them emitting CO2 or are you going to close them down before the end of their useful life? Yeah, yeah, and it's a great question. So, one, so, you know, so we, I think, we, we need I, think I don't think it's an either or. Yeah, um, you you may well decide not to reinvest in primary primary steel making. I think that's a a strategic decision actually yeah. for the government to take. Yeah, whether we want to do that. Um, yeah. So, so but you if, if we don't, then a... well, let me let me just finish. So there's some really awesome. important points. One is one is yes, we'll have some blast furnaces that actually have got quite a bit of life left in them and we could certainly get 15 years maybe of operation for a post-combustion capture system and at the end of 15 years who knows um yeah where the actual economics and technology come out but then the real thing is we're talking about doing things which have essentially zero purpose apart from tackling climate change mm. So you know, why 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 don't we put CO two in the air? Well, we don't want climate change. Actually, will it make any difference, really, if the UK does this to the outcome? And the answer is directly no. So the UK puts in electric arc furnaces. We cut our emissions by whatever. Mm -hmm. um, everybody goes well, well, electric arc furnaces. That's bog standard. Um, you know the Brits have just essentially done a bit more of their usual deindustrialization and will be dependent on various other countries for certain grades of steel now uh what impact would that have actually on the climate change outcome 
nothing, absolutely yeah. nothing. Whereas, as we've discussed, um, UK steel assets are a bit older than most, but there's plenty of steel making going on in the world uh, and will carry on for more than these 10,000 days, almost certainly, using coal-based steel making, mm. blast furnaces, coke ovens. And if the UK demonstrates ways of cutting CO2 from those plants, then actually the impact on climate change is much, much greater. Mm. And this is something that often gets forgotten in the UK, that, that it's all very well saying, oh, well, we hit our targets and that means that everything's okay. But it's not. Because, you know, if we hit our targets by doing things that are perfectly obvious and indeed things that the whole world can't do, mm. we've, we've demonstrated nothing. And, yeah. you know, fractions of 1% of CO of global CO2 emissions, which were all, all that we're talking about, just will not be a, have yeah. a noticeable effect. We have to have a noticeable effect through demonstration. And just to repeat, just demonstrating that we hit a target is not enough. We have to hit it in a way that encourages other people and enables other people to do the same. It is a difficult debate. So I remember in the first podcast, I think it was Pete Quinn, our sustainability director, said, look, even in 2050, half the world's steel will still be made using blast furnace roots. Well, unless, unless they close down a lot of perfectly good um, plant very early. I mean, you can't. Yeah, but, uh, but his, his point was there's not enough scrap in the world to run all of the world's steel on electric art furnace scrap based steel making route. So he was saying you, you uh, and there's probably not, not enough not iron. Or, sorry to interrupt. There's probably not enough iron ore to run replaceable with yeah. DRI either direct yeah. reduction. And I, but I think you know everyone's doing it. So yes. everyone's in everyone's in the same place about saying look UK is a relatively small country. Whatever it does won't have a massive impact on the global climate, but we should all do our piece. Now what you're suggesting if and correct me if I'm wrong is saying you know, instead of moving to a new technology, our our place in the world would be have a greater impact if we demonstrated a technology that could be used globally across all based steel making than to move to electric arc furnace based scrap steel making, which will have very little effect. Is that what, is that what you're suggesting? Yes, that, that that's right. And summed it up very well. Yeah. Um, and it, it'll have a, a really important effect because of the timing. Uh, not many countries are doing that that first are doing that at the moment you know and time is valuable you can you can use time quite importantly with with actually demonstrating one or two plants you know you, you'll always have to start out and do that do that initial demonstration and then once it's no longer first of a kind for other people they can go much more quickly it's very very hard to short circuit that you can say you know we want to build yeah. 100 plants but if they're all 100 first of a kind plants you're in trouble you've got to have some some early leaders uh to both demonstrate the technology and also demonstrate the commitment i spent a lot of time going to china talking about ccs i've been doing it for 20 years uh, i was actually discussing capture from blast furnace based steel plants with them last week and of course the question always is yes but are you doing this in the uk Oh no, we're going to electric art phones. Oh, we can't do that. What's the point? Yeah. Yeah. It's a tricky one, isn't it? And, and the more you dig into this whole topic about decarbonisation, the more complex it gets. And but you know, you talked earlier about the time pressure and yeah, 10,000 days. Let me, let me just say, sorry, the, the problem is not decarbonisation. The problem 
is cutting global CO2 emissions. Yeah, okay. You know, decarbonisation is a bureaucratic target and it's, it's essentially trying to, trying to reject uh, the state of the world as it is, which is, which is a bit sad, but nonetheless, we are a fossil-based society. We use fossil it's for just... 80% of our energy. We've got the population we have because of the fossil. And if yeah. you try and take it away too quickly, you'll take away the population. So, <laughs> the, the, Yeah, and the, the whole conversation about, about global population is definitely a different podcast. <laughs> well, it, it may be a different podcast, but, it, but it's all going together. But what I'm saying is, if you don't call the problem by its correct name, and the problem is not that we're, you know, we're not making steel with hydrogen mm-hmm. in the UK, uh, nor even globally. The problem is that CO2 is building up in the atmosphere and will continue to build up. And it's global CO2 and a global impact. That's why I say that, that if you, you know, if you state the problem as one thing, then people solve the problem as it's misstated and think they've got it. And unfortunately, in a thousand days, days or less sorry ten thousand days or less will realize that actually it, that was all very well but it it just didn't achieve the result yeah i guess you know i guess to be generous i guess it might be people might see it as a means to an end and decarbonization is a route to reducing uh, carbon in the atmosphere and therefore climate change so uh, but i understand your point in terms of people's emotions around it which is really critical in the narrative and what governments decide to do based on uh, electoral uh, permission, arguably, it's important that people don't see a decarbonisation process as a as a cost to society. They see it as part of the solution to the bigger problem, which everyone recognises. Well, it is. I, I, I'm not sure I really follow. It is a cost to society. Yeah, I mean, it would be better if we were able to dump CO2 in the atmosphere. It would save us money. Yeah, a financial it, cost, I meant, you know. Yeah, because the difficulty is we say, you know, the argument with government is saying, look, if we want to change technology or invest in carbon capture and storage, you know, they just announced, I think, 20 billion pound fund, haven't they, for carbon capture? You know, the the voters are going to go, hang on a minute, 20 billion pounds, the health service is falling over, the energy crisis, blah, blah, blah. That's they see that as a cost. And if they said this is 20 billion pounds to make sure that climate doesn't warm, people say, well, that sounds quite cheap. Do you know, the, 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 it's, a, it's sometimes a way that you tell the well, story, yeah, and the words yeah. you use, isn't it? Yeah, fair enough. But uh, I think there is also the point that you can get caught up in your own narrative. And and it is it is as well to face up that it's a cost and don't you know again if you're trying to get a global result then being seen as being prepared to pay the necessary cost uh not to dump co2 in the atmosphere essentially yeah is actually quite important and it helps other countries who perhaps don't have the same electoral concerns to realize that it's actually okay to pay the cost as yeah. well you've got to do certain things you've got to strike a balance but pretending that it's it's all wonderful and we can you know we can just switch to renewable energy save money save carbon and everything else um may end up give you know essentially reaching reaching the buffers mm. when you find that you can't actually balance the books that way and certain things have to happen that cost more money than people would like and if you're not prepared for that yeah. then it is difficult yeah, this might be an unfair question, but do you see the long-term goal being to be able to manufacture goods without 
emitting carbon and therefore carbon capture is a transition technology would that be no fair? i see that i see the long-term goal as being able to do everything with no net co2 addition to the atmosphere yeah so <clears throat> emitting carbon is neither here emitting carbon dioxide is neither here nor there mm. it's whether you leave it in the atmosphere or not mm. so the the transition on climate change will come when somebody builds a plant that's capable of taking CO2 out of the air at the multiple 100,000 tonne scale. And Occidental Petroleum in the US are looking at that now with a, a plant to take out about a million tonnes a year. Now, this will be expensive, but it, it, it doesn't really matter what it costs because what it's doing is actually putting a price on CO2 emissions. Now, you, you can look at it two ways. If it's expensive, you say, well, why the hell are we leaving CO2 in the atmosphere for future generations if it's going to be expensive? Mm. And if it's cheap, you say, why the hell are you not doing it? You're just a cheapskate. You could you could pull your CO2 out of the air and not leave it there for future generations. So mm. what that what that will do is to put a real price on emitting CO2 because everybody says we need a global price on carbon. But I've never worked out how paying money to the, you know, in our case, the Treasury which then just goes into the, the tax pot, actually really compensates for putting CO2 in the atmosphere. Whereas paying for somebody to take it out again and permanently put it a kilometre or more on the ground yeah. uh, out of circulation, actually, you know, it sorts out the problem. Yeah. And at the moment, the narrative has not included uh, direct air capture and this real price on carbon and the real ability to pay it. When it does, it'll change the way people think. And of course, if you can avoid having to either pay that price or look like a cheapskate, then you will, and you'll you know you'll capture the CO two in your case uh, if you've still got them from the stacks you've got on steel plants, yeah. and indeed you you'll be able to do that and ship it somewhere if shipping is required more cheaply. I think than people pulling it out of the air. We're talking about a global effect from CO two emitted. And the impact comes because of aggregate emissions from all over the world. And it's those aggregate emissions that have got to be stopped. Yeah. Uh, the UK, within its own control, only has a, a less than uh, 2% now. Uh, and even, even if you account emissions from imports, it's, it's not very much. Even China actually doesn't have that much of the global emissions. You know, everybody's got to, got to participate here. So yeah. to get a result, you have to impress everyone and make everybody somehow act. Mm. And you can think you're going to do that by cutting your own emissions. But if you cut your emissions in a way that other people can't use, mm. then they're not going to be very impressed. You know, you, you've just done something um, that, that's not accessible to them and you're making life more difficult uh, for them by just saying they can't emit so it's really important uh, for the uk to realize that not only do we have to cut our own emissions but as i say we have to do it in a way that encourages people to think that they can do the same um and also you know that, that given that it will cost them money that we're also prepared uh, to make that same financial sacrifice uh, to do it but won't free market economics determine that each country and each economy 
develops their own solution to, you know, dependent on their you know, culture, political structure, historical, industrial profile. You know, why, 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 no, why is one solution I don't, right I don't for think you quite, I don't think you quite got it. it. You're talking as if it was a done deal that the world was going to hit net zero by 2050. And it's and it's just talk, you know. I mean, if yeah. if we if we were sure that we were going to hit net zero by twenty fifty, and also if we were sure that countries were not going to emit more than their share of the uh, you know reasonable amount of CO two cumulatively to emit by twenty fifty, then fine, yeah, you just let it go on. Yeah, but we're nowhere near that. We're not yeah. even going to likely really. You know, look, there's a lot of talk, but I don't think we've got really hard agreement to get to net zero by 2050. And we certainly haven't got to the point where countries say, well, actually, OK, so we can emit, I don't know, let's say another maybe uh, uh, perhaps 200 gigatons or something of carbon, some amount of carbon. OK, so now we've we've apportioned that 200 gigatons out among all the countries in the world. And I, you know, I actually mentioned that to people in the UN a while ago. And they said, well, we couldn't possibly do that. We'll never get agreement. <laughs> Well, that's where we're at. Yeah. And and so just saying, well, yeah. leave it to the market, let everybody do what they want is all very well. But actually, at the moment, you've got to do things that, first of all, make countries think that they can contemplate actually cutting emissions. Uh, and that may mean doing things in the UK, which don't perhaps meet what we think would be best for us. I'm not sure whether they actually would be best but which actually would encourage other people to think that they can cut emissions, say people in China, India, Vietnam, places that are using coal-based steelmaking. Yeah, but it seems just quite an extraordinary proposition to say that China are, 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 are waiting to do carbon capture until a country like the UK leads the way. I mean, why is that rather count? I don't know. Are they not, you know, they're an advanced economy, you know, they... Don't they have the same incentive as we do in terms of demand for green products globally? Why do why is it why does the UK have to lead the way if we've got a, a different choice and technology? And I'm being deliberately provocative on purpose in a way, John. But you know, if we've got a if the UK is is an economy that is scrap rich, for example, and I know I'm focusing on the steel industry, so I apologize for that and mm -hmm. bear with me. But if the UK sure. is a scrap, scrap rich economy, why would it not invest in the technology to use that scrap which doesn't emit? Yeah, but you're still talking yeah. about an either or. So, yeah, so well, I guess what I'm saying is, if you, if the UK has the choice to do that, and India or China don't because they're not a scrap rich economy, is it not horses for courses? Where you say, look, China, you'd be better off doing carbon capture until you're a scrap rich economy. In the UK and Germany, are scrap rich economy, you're better off changing technology. Is it not better to have horses for courses? Or do you think it's sort of a, a global responsibility of the industrializations to, to, to lead the way and say, here's the technology, we've proved it, now you should use it? Those, those, are, both, those are both extreme views. So what I, what I would think is best for the UK, uh, even irrespective of climate change, is to retain some primary steelmaking, while at the same time, yes, switching some of our capacity to electric arc furnace rather than exporting scrap. Uh, and then in terms, in retaining that, that's still making, I would strongly suggest that we do it on one or whatever, one or two of the newer blast furnace plants, not least because I think the cost will still be lower than, than using reduction using hydrogen, if we want to retain the primary still making, 
and also because of the message that I've given pretty frequently, that will encourage other places. And as I say, if you're in if you're in China, and I, I as I say, I've been there a lot of times talking to people, and the question always is when you suggest why don't you do CCS? They say, <laughs> Are you doing this in the UK? Yeah, yeah. And okay, they don't have necessarily the same sort of uh, political cycle that we do, but they know that CCS is a cost. They know that it's a trouble, and they feel a bunch of charlies if they do it. And the country that's got the biggest uh, history of, of CO2, cumulative CO2 emissions, can't even do it. Mm. Yeah, I guess so, the difficulty with, you know, and again, I know still making necessarily isn't your area of expertise necessarily, but I guess one of the difficulties in... Um, in the in the blast furnace iron ore based steel making in the uk is is even even the youngest assets are at least halfway through the life so look at 20 blast furnace four in port Albert is, you know it was rebuilt in 2013 so with good wind 20 20 years 2033 so you've got another 10 years in it but to run a blast furnace you also need to be running a coke ovens and a sinter sure. plant and a and and those assets are probably more fragile than the blast furnaces in terms of near the end of the life. So you've got a choice about saying, if you want to, if you want to run that to the end of its asset, which obviously financially, there's a lot of sense to be said for that, then you need to support the assets behind it. Yep. And then from a financial economic perspective, that gets quite difficult. Well, it'd be interesting to look at it. I, I my understanding was that there was likely to be the potential for a relining and a life extension. So you would, you yeah. to get at least, at least 15 as I say, 15 to 20 years more out of it. Yeah. In the longer term, yeah, you might need to consider uh, increasing coke imports. But yeah. but I think, as I say, I think if the, you know, there's a combination of things, uh, strategic issues, uh, the combination is maintaining a primary steelmaking capacity in the country uh, without committing ourselves to the really unknown time period before hydrogen is available in, in quantity mm. uh, and at a, an affordable cost. And then also this one about demonstrating technology. Mm. Uh, you know, and if you want to, I, I, I'm not sure we can get into the the actual lifing of, of Port Talbot, which I think is probably the the plant that's likely to keep on going for longest, mm. uh, but, but we could do. I mean, there, there is another aspect, of course, to places like Port Talbot in particular, is the local employment and skills. Yeah. Uh, and that that's also another factor. Now, what what I would say, yes, there's the the issues about the steel plant and how you would keep that going. And I think, as I say, you know, at least half the capacity one blast furnace might be a reasonable number. Um, and then there's also the point. Okay, so now getting into the CCS. You're only going to do that if you get government support. And you mentioned 20 billion is available for support. Mm. Now, the question then becomes, okay, so leaving aside the the, uh, the actual plant, how cost effective is CO2 capture likely to be on that site compared to other places in the UK? Because mm. you know, we're going to do some amount of CO2 capture. And the answer is probably pretty good because... The CO2 concentration in the flue gases from the power plant, which is one of the biggest sources, is pretty yep. high. And that, that has some bearing on the uh, operating cost and, and uh, running cost of the plant. And then also on the site as a whole, there's probably a certain amount of, of low-grade heat, which is all you need to run 
post-combustion capture that's available at relatively low cost. Mm. Uh, so there's those factors. Then finally, in terms of getting rid of the CO2, yes, you're not on a pipeline, but you've got good ship access. Mm. So I think with a combination of pretty favourable CO2 capture costs and shipping costs that are probably no worse than anywhere else and probably better than, than most, um, because you've got this transatlantic option as well as as mm. well as both coasts. Actually, it, you know, you, it may seem expensive, but then it, it's not so expensive compared to everything else. Mm. And in and terms you, of timings, John, you know, we talked about the pressures on timings because of steel making assets, but but in terms of timings of carbon capture technology and assets, how far away are we from from some of those assets being put into place? And is there you know, well, some so, issues about some of those plants being cancelled recently, I, I've read in the news. No, I mean, what, what's, well, cancelled, no. What's what's happened is um, we've had two uh, pipeline clusters essentially selected for the first, first track, track one. Uh, that's a pipeline out of North Wales into the Irish Sea, uh, going through onto Merseyside. And then another one from Teesside. We've also got advanced plans for a pipeline, as I said, going south of the Humber uh, and out into the Southern North Sea. And then pretty advanced plans for reuse of existing pipelines in Scotland. And all of those pipelines are expected to be there by 2030. So that's pretty quick. Yeah. We then had uh, a selection of projects to capture the CO2 and go rapidly uh, ahead. And those have been down-selected over a period of a year from 41 projects to eight. Right. Three on Teesside and five on uh, on Merseyside, North North Wales. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's just normal. You, you don't want to plan to have everything happening all at once. Yeah. We haven't, we haven't got the UK capacity to build multiple projects in parallel, and it would be very expensive if we tried. So you do have to have some scheduling, but what's what's been happening is not so much that projects have been cancelled, but that there's been a selection of projects to go first. Now, South Wales, I don't think made any applications into the into the round. They, you could have done because you could have said you were shipping to Hynet, uh, but I don't think it was done, mm. and I don't think Port Talbot actually put in anything. Um, or even even considered it because of uncertainty about what to do. Mm. But in the time scale that you've got, it's now there's now going to be a call for follow-on projects, uh, and actually you could go fairly quickly uh, to start investigating the feasibility of that. And it's twenty twenty billion pounds up until I think twenty thirty five. So the money's there on the table for quite a long time. Mm. So it is a complex it's a complex mix isn't it uh john but, but because those timings you know you said seven years i know you said there were some quicker projects there and you say well you know seven years hence that blast furnace four is really getting towards the end of its life and, you know i thought it could be relined yeah i mean i, I guess any blast furnace can have life extension programs but they yeah. are come at a cost uh, and yeah, sure. and largely dependent on the longer term decision, you, know, you don't want to make a regret spend. You know, you don't want to spend 30, 40, 50, 60 million pound extending the life of a furnace that's going to 
be ripped down in a couple of years. You know what I mean? And and I know it kind of seems a long way away, but everything no, it, seems a long way away, doesn't it, at the moment, including it, it some need, of these carbon capture projects? Absolutely. It needs looking at. Um, you know, you've got to think actually what the the investment requirements are for the plant and the implications for the cost. Um, the continuity of steel making on the site, if you want to do that, mm. you know the the value of keeping the capacity to make steel rather than just go down the scrap route in the UK, and look at that. And you talk about timing. Presumably, it's going to be even longer than that before you're going to get hydrogen in the quantities and at the cost you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the hydrogen. Uh, yeah, the hydrogen debate is a, is a slightly separate one. But you know, I can I can see a place where you could run an electric arc furnace on renewable energy with 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 a small amount of imported iron ore, whether that's created with hydrogen or not. Such that the hydrogen economy yeah. necessarily for the Port Albert Steelworks isn't isn't critical in terms of the yep. iron and steel making process. So, yep. you know, you, you can quite easily paint that picture and you've got the Celtic Freeport that's just been announced. So you yep. can paint this picture yep. of an industrial ecosystem. And I guess, you know, psychologically, maybe one of the issues for carbon capture might be that people say, oh, it's all right. We've got carbon capture now. We don't we don't need to push forward on new technologies for scrap based steel making or we don't need to p push forward the technologies for changing how you make certain products from electric arc furnace rather than blast furnace root iron and so so the, almost the pressure comes off because people think you've solved the problem is that a risk do you think john what's the problem you're trying to solve well if we and, and there's some big ifs in here but if you if you said that the carbon capture technology is a transition until we get to a place globally if you like where we are making products using less carbon in the first place is the danger that people take the, the pressure no, no, that technology I, sorry i i, I got to interrupt you, the problem is not whether we make products using more or less carbon the problem is how much of that carbon dioxide ends up in the atmosphere and how much of it ends up globally as I say, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, you know, but is it got a current process? Sorry, sorry. If you so uh, you know, look at Port Talbot. So we currently yeah. produce about seven million tons of CO two a year. If you change to a, to a scrap based technology, you may be producing one million tons of CO two a year. Okay. So you've got six million tons that you're not even making. You don't have to capture it or do anything with it. You're not making it. That's yeah. That's got to be a good thing. That's got to be a good thing. Um, yes, in in some senses, but. In what sense is it is it the best thing you can do? Because it comes with a cost in terms of shifting to a scrap-based process, sure. opportunity cost. And I'm still very unsure that the money you spend on that, the subsidies that you need for electricity, mm. are the best way, really, mm. that... The population of the UK, because it's not the government, it's the population of the UK, yep. can spend money to get a result on climate change. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and it's a fascinating debate. And I know we could go on all day about this because it's almost a circular argument because, you know, from a from a capital expenditure cost or cost of the government or the company, you could say, well, you could spend exactly the same amount replacing exactly what you've got at the moment with carbon capture on the back of it. So... Yeah, but, look, the, the proposition is that probably the UK switches mostly 
a number of plants do electric art furnace. You keep one blast furnace train going at Port Talbot, which probably is life extended, and that has post-combustion capture. You will need some post-combustion capture for that million tons a year from the electric yep. art furnaces. And you know, at the end of at the end of the period, which will be a lot further on, um, when when the post-combustion capture on that train at Port Talbot's finished. Yeah. You may carry on using it just for the electric art furnaces. You may carry on using the facilities for some other carbon capture purposes, like, for example, a biomass power plant or a waste of energy power plant. This, it, you know, it keeps your options open. Mm. And I tell you, over that time, you will have had delegations from all over the world coming to see how it's done. And you will have gone all over the world telling people about it and saving them time and giving them confidence to do it. And that plant will be the ancestor progenitor whatever you're going to call it of probably hundreds of similar plants globally yeah which is very appealing isn't it is anyone else in europe ahead of us in this game john in terms of um carbon capture of the steel industry particularly that you're aware of not that i'm aware of no um no so there's I mean, an opportunity there there's an opportunity well an opportunity or a need i mean i'm not i'm not sure if you know if, if if somebody somewhere was going to do carbon capture on steel and demonstrate it globally, then obviously that's fine. You, why wouldn't you let them do it? You know, mm. uh, you don't necessarily want an opportunity to show off. You just want it to happen. But actually, I don't think there is mm. that many places that will do it. Um, you're right that China could do it, but it's not. I don't think it's likely to lead because it concedes a point. You know, from China's perspective spending the cost for ccs when other countries are not prepared to do it it basically concedes a political point <laughs> yeah there is that to, to to be in there as well so as John, i say I, like... I i think you you know you can get a fair amount of electric art furnaces you can look at the parochial local points but to me there seems a pretty reasonable case Given the ages of the assets and what's possible, it's not—it's not perfect, but it's not that important, not that much of a stretch either. To put post-combustion capture on half of the Port Talbot capacity, ship the CO2, and as I say, that CO2 is probably some of the cheapest CO2 to capture in the UK, yeah. uh, and it's also, as, as far as shipping goes, some of the cheapest CO2 to ship. And then all of those all of those capture assets probably can can carry on getting down to net zero with electric art furnaces and also with the um, with other things you're likely to put on that site. It's interesting actually. The um, steel site on T side has now been cleared, and they're actually building uh, a large post combustion gas fired power plant on it. BP. So. Yeah. Uh, steel sites get obviously get reused for things yeah. if they're not not used for their original purpose yeah. john listen i'm very conscious of time and uh, not only your time and busy man uh, but also yeah. our listeners times and how long they 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 want to listen to this episode fascinating conversation i'm delighted we got you on uh, you know really stretching my thought processes and hopefully those of our listeners as well it's a it's an extremely complex picture and you know you explained it in a, in a holistic and global perspective as climate change should be discussed but it seems there's a mix of technology options 
um, e environmental uh, decisions to be made, uh, economic decisions and political decisions, as you said, globally across the world. And they kind of all need to come together for the greater good and they need to do that fairly quickly. You know, there may not be a silver bullet, but lots of the discussion I think we've had today will hopefully uh, help people understand that there's more ways of skinning a cat, aren't there? But I'm very grateful for your time. Uh, that's all right. And, and you know, I'm sure we'll catch yeah, up thank, sometime. Thanks for getting in touch. It's uh, it's appreciated mind here. Absolute pleasure, John. So that was Professor John Gibbons, the Centre Director of the UK Carbon Capture and Storage Research Community Network Plus at Sheffield University, sharing his insights into the potential role of carbon capture and storage technology in reducing human impact on climate change. It was fascinating to talk to him about a new aspect of decarbonisation for us on this podcast and hear John's thoughts and warnings. 10,000 days until 2050 doesn't sound very long away. And conversely, 10,000 years as a minimum for carbon to be sequestered sounds like an eon. His desire for the UK to play a much more significant role in the global challenge of climate change by becoming a demonstrator country for carbon capture that others can follow was striking as opposed to simply adopting on a relatively small scale as the UK alone, the best possible technologies, which in the grand scheme of things may make little difference. As guests before have said, timescales are a real issue for the steel industry. When do businesses assets come to the end of life? How quickly can technology, electric arc furnace, carbon capture, storage, or others, be put in place? And how soon and how costly are renewable energy sources and hydrogen likely to be? He was certainly a fascinating guest to have on board the podcast, and he challenged some of my own preconceptions about carbon capture. I'm sure it won't be the last time we talk about the topic on these podcasts. So thanks for listening to this episode. Please let us know what you think about the topics we're discussing or any other aspects of decarbonisation and sustainability you'd like to hear about. If you want to keep up to date with the latest happenings in Tata Steel UK and in this series, our journey towards decarbonisation, please do subscribe to Steelcast through Spotify, Google, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. <laughs>